Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. From the Wall Street Journal, this is Bad Bats. I'm Ben Foldy. In the last episode, the Hindenburg team was almost done crafting its report on Nikola. The team was preparing to put its research on the line. Could it convince the market that Trevor Milton was a liar? This episode tells the story of that report's release and the strange events that followed, including a confrontation involving secret recordings and private eyes. We'll get to that. We should note, after his conviction in October on federal fraud charges, both Trevor and his lawyers have pledged to keep fighting. They haven't answered any of our questions for this podcast. Nicola said, after Trevor's conviction, that it was pleased to move on and focus on executing its business strategy. I'm going to start this episode with what became the most explosive detail in the Hindenburg Report. A detail that meant solving one of Nikola's biggest mysteries. How did it make a truck that couldn't drive zoom down a highway? That mystery had long puzzled Paul Lackey, the engineer from Oregon who helped build that truck, Nikola's first prototype, the Nikola 1. About a year after the big unveiling of that truck, Paul saw a video that he says left him bewildered. It was a video posted on the Nikola Company Twitter account back in January of 2018. The tweet read, quote, Behold, the Nikola One in motion, end quote. It showed the truck cruising down a desert highway. We mentioned this moment in episode three. My first thought was, did they get that thing working? In the video, it sure looked like they did. The gleaming white truck seemed to be barreling down the two-lane road, surrounded by sagebrush and rocky mountains. It showed, like, drone shots... It showed the truck traveling at a high rate of speed down what appeared to be a flat road. Paul says he was perplexed because the last time he'd seen the truck, it was an unfinished prototype that couldn't be driven. He had wondered what had gone on inside Nikola in the months after he'd left. I hadn't talked to anybody from there for almost a year. And so I texted my friend and asked, hey, did you get this truck up and running? He said, no, it hasn't been touched since the show. And I was like, okay, that must have been green screen, but that was a lot of work. And that's kind of the end of what I thought about that. But in August of 2020, after his frustration with Trevor grew to the point that he launched the Nikola Insider Twitter account, Paul returned to this mystery. I sent a message to my friend saying, okay, how did they do the Nikola in motion video? And he said, well, what I heard was that they took it to the top of a hill and rolled it down. And that hadn't occurred to me at all, but it completely made sense the second he said that. And so I resolved to find out where they had done this. Paul says the first place he looked was around Salt Lake City. That was where Paul had worked on the truck and where he had last seen it, right before the Nikola 1 reveal in 2016. And if he was right, that Nikola hadn't gotten the truck fully operational, he figured Nikola would have shot the video close to home. So I got out Google Maps and, you know, started looking at the video, all the different angles, seeing where the mountains were, and I got kind of a sense of where it had to be. Paul says he quickly narrowed the options down to the western side of the Salt Lake Valley. And I just started looking at roads, uh, looking for a long road, and there was this one really long straight road that kind of 
almost immediately stood out. That stretch that caught Paul's eye, it's called the Mormon Trail Road. Paul says he started essentially driving down the road using the Google Street View feature, comparing it to the video. Started, you know, going up frame by frame. And as I was going down this road, I was getting more and more excited because the, the mountains were lining up and everything looked right. I was convinced that this had to be the road. Paul kept clicking around Google Maps, seeing what else he could learn about this road. So went to the terrain feature on Google Maps and found that it had a 3% grade for like three miles. So I was thinking, well, how, how steep is 3%? Paul says he knew a 3% decline meant the road could appear level to the naked eye. But he wondered if it was steep enough that an unpowered truck would roll down it. To answer this question, Paul, ever the engineer, designed a simple experiment. He recruited a friend who lived in Utah to drive out to the road, stop at the top of a hill, and put his Honda Pilot in neutral. Okay, I'm in park. His friend recorded a video. I'm going to put it in neutral and just roll. The video is shot from behind the wheel. You can see the car slowly begin rolling down this slight decline. Meanwhile, Paul was anxiously waiting to hear word from his friend. Finally, his phone buzzed. And I see a, a text message from him, and it's like, that was amazing, I got up to 45 miles per hour. And I was like, yes! <laughs> I couldn't believe it. It was beyond my, my best expectations. I was like, this is it, I found it. Later, this discovery would become an online sensation. And I wondered if anyone there that day in the desert, watching this truck roll, if they had any idea just how significant this moment would become. You know why, why we're interested in chatting with you today, and uh, it's, a, it's a particular ad that recently was used as evidence in a criminal trial. Yes. Um, has, that, has that happened to you with any roles of yours before, that you've, you've been evidence in a criminal fraud trial? No, I don't think I've ever appeared in court in any capacity, but not as, not in, not as an actor in a commercial, for sure. <laughs> this is Noah Krishisnik. He's an actor in Utah. He was behind the wheel of the Nikola one that day. I'm curious, did they, did they also want you to have a CDL or a commercial driver's license, or were there any other kind of requirements for the audition? No, no, nothing else. <laughs> did you know that you would be driving, for lack of a better word, the truck? No, no, okay. I had no so they idea. Didn't, they I, didn't tell you that part? No, <laughs> no, they didn't. On the morning of the shoot, Noah says he drove out two hours into the desert, and once he arrived, he was escorted to the set. They brought the Nikola out on a flatbed trailer. I knew about Tesla, obviously, for cars, but the idea of an electric truck, I hadn't even, I hadn't even considered it. And it was kind of blowing my mind, like, wow, this is just ready to go. It's right here. We're going to have big, quiet trucks trucking our stuff around. And the engineer guy there said, he said, this is a working prototype. We can't drive it for these reasons. So what we're going to do is coast it down the hill. Noah says, at the time, he didn't think much about the engineer's explanation. And he climbed up into the cab of the Nikola One. It was really clean, really kind of just like dark colors. And oddly kind of spacious was what stood out to me. I thought, man, that was a big cab. It smelled, had, a, had a very new, very futuristic uh, space travel-y smell. And I don't know how to describe it. Like space travel, but if you were like in an airport. <laughs> like, <laughs> so they, they push it. And uh, yeah, it was just rolling down the hill. Do you remember how like far you went or how fast you went? 
maybe 30 miles an hour. It's like, yeah, this is the next next step is just inter, intergalactic shipping, you know. <laughs> Two years later, when the Hindenburg team heard that Paul Lackey had solved the mystery of the Nikola One in motion, they say they were thrilled. I thought it was hilarious. I really did. Nate Anderson, short seller and head of Hindenburg Research. I mean, it's so brazen. I mean, what are you going to do? You have you have to laugh as, as far as like the actual kind of caper itself. And with the mystery solved to the team's satisfaction, Nate says he felt they had the goods. And then, just as they were putting the finishing touches on their report, in September of 2020, Trevor Milton made a big announcement. Here he is on Instagram. Morning, everyone. Super early, 3.30 in the morning. I was up here in um, Arizona. So I just wanted to tell everyone real quick between my interviews, humongous announcement today. Nikola and General Motors have partnered to build the Nikola Badger and to leverage their entire supply batteries, uh, fuel cell, everything else. Absolutely wonderful. I remember this news breaking. America's largest automaker, partnering with a much-hyped rising EV company, that was a story I was going to cover. We reached out to GM for this podcast, but it declined to comment. That morning, though, when the news broke, I hopped on a conference call with Trevor Milton and Mary Barra, GM CEO, along with a bunch of other reporters. I would now like to turn the call over to Trevor Thank you so much for having us, guys, today. It's going to be a lot of fun, very exciting announcement, uh, probably one of the biggest announcements in uh, Nikola's history besides going public. And then Trevor introduced Mary Barra. So I will turn it over. Great. Thanks, Trevor. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining on such short notice. Uh, this collaboration does bring together two innovative companies. Mary talked about how excited she was about the deal and then opened it up for questions. So I asked one. And the answer surprised me. Is Nikola providing any kind of IP or, or that it's developed to the GM side? Is GM taking anything from Nikola in this? You want to take that one, Trevor? Yeah, I think that there's a lot of uh, uh, there's a lot of things that we're going to help. I think bring to GM that is uh, not not normally found naturally in a big organization. Some of that is through us pushing them to be you know, uncomfortable in certain situations that they're not usually uh, used to. Also, like, good examples around, we have a, a different strategy around our infotainment and our controls and how you control a vehicle, you know, through your through your phone and the ability to fully have access to that vehicle and the infotainment system, very similar to what you found in, in other, like, say, a, a... It's kind of a remarkable moment. I had asked the head of GM, one of the most powerful people in the auto industry, a question about what the automaker was getting out of this deal. She punted to Trevor, and Trevor went off on how his company was going to push GM to be uncomfortable, and then kind of rambled about infotainment. I remember being a little befuddled by this sequence, and I wasn't alone. I just remember thinking, what? Christina Rogers oversees the autos coverage here at the Wall Street Journal. She'd been covering the industry for around a decade, and was my boss back then. I just remember thinking at the time... I don't understand how a company of GM size can't achieve all of this on their own. Why on earth does GM need this? I mean, what is it going to get from Nikola that it can't do itself? Nikola had carefully cultivated its image as an up-and-coming startup with breakthrough technology. But GM had already spent tons of money on its own fuel cells. Plus, it sold more than 800,000 pickup trucks the year before. It could have made its own hydrogen pickup if it wanted to. So to those of us who followed the industry, this deal left more questions than answers. 
But Nikola had something that GM didn't. It had Wall Street's attention during the frenzied hunt for the next Tesla. Very surreal that summer. It just seemed like every day there was a new hot EV startup popping on your radar. And within the span of a year, you had all these EV startups just like going public and then just commanding these huge valuations. I mean, it just didn't make any sense. And I think a lot of the legacy automakers were sitting there going, wait, what? we can't even get our stock to move. How are these guys coming in? And just from the start, no sales, no revenue, and just like, you know, winning over Wall Street. So I think that Nikola for GM had this certain kind of glow and wanted some of that. From the outside, it seemed like a bit of Nikola's glitz had rubbed off on GM with the automaker's stock going up 8% that day. But Nikola got the bigger bump. Its stock price jumped by 41%. Nikola had gotten a major stamp of approval from a new partner. Again, Trevor Milton. For all of you who have been wondering how legitimate Nikola is in long-term viability of EV companies and Nikola, well, there you go, there's your answer. It's the biggest news in the electric vehicle industry right now, and probably some of the biggest news really ever. While this was all unfolding, the team over at Hindenburg Research say they watched in disbelief. Christine Richards, the researcher with Hindenburg, said they wondered whether their report would still have an impact. Once GM announced their partnership, I thought, uh, we're going to have to pull the plug on it. Surely General Motors had an army of people doing due diligence It just seemed like you were going up against this giant, and who's going to listen to you? I remember at the time thinking that, I wonder if any of the outright lies that we had found matter anymore. Again, Nate Anderson, head of Hindenburg. Because it really seemed that GM was going to come in and try and transform all those lies into some sort of actual reality. And if anyone could do it, it's probably GM that can figure it out. And I really wasn't sure at that point whether that had somehow rendered all of what we'd done irrelevant and whether Trevor had kind of lied his way to a point where he'd finally just landed on his feet. And now someone else could turn it into a reality. But after some deliberation, Nate says he decided to go ahead with releasing the report. In fact, he decided they would publish it just two days after the GM news broke. And he gave the report a new subtitle, Nikola. How to Parlay an Ocean of Lies into a Partnership with the Largest Auto OEM in America. It was a 15,000-word report on Trevor Milton and Nikola that included the sections on batteries, inverters, hydrogen production, everything we told you about in the last episode. And then, in those final hours, Nate says, anxiety and doubt took hold. The day before publication, I had read the report so many times, panic had started to set in. I remember reading the report again and just wondering, what if everything is wrong? What if his name isn't even Trevor Milton? It was just a moment of pure, like, this is a little crazy. What are we doing here? Very soon, I was going to end up pushing a publish button, and a whole lot of things were going to happen. There would be lawsuit threats, there would be media... Yeah, this was the biggest company I think we had had published on at the time. We were picking a really big fight, and we knew it. At that time, Hindenburg wasn't a name widely known in the financial world. And it was making a massive bet. If people cared about its report, 
and sold Nikola stock, Hindenburg stood to win big. But if Nikola's shares shot up, like they did after the announcement of the GM deal or after Trevor's tweets about the Badger, Hindenburg could be on the hook for massive losses. At roughly 8 a.m. on Thursday, September 10th, 2020, Nate hit publish. A day earlier, 2,000 miles west in Salt Lake City, Mark Pugsley, the lawyer, had also submitted a confidential complaint to the SEC on behalf of his clients, some of whom were confidential sources for Hindenburg's report, like Mike Shrout and Paul Lackey. On the morning Hindenburg released its report, Mark says he held his breath. I remember I went into the office early that day, and I had my screen open, and on one side of my kind of widescreen, I had the, this ticker price uh, for Nikola. I was watching that. Mark kept watching, and then the markets opened. We've got some breaking news we want to get to right this moment. Dom Chu's got that news, and it's on Nikola this morning. All right, Nikola shares are down about 4.5%, 1.3 million shares of volume. Nikola shares Nikola has are tumbling now after a short seller called the company, quote, an intricate fraud built on dozens of lives. And Hindenburg says that it has recorded phone conversations, it has text messages, emails, and documents. It spoke to... You could see the stock start to tick down, tick down, tick down as people began to digest what we'd put together. The Hindenburg report contained a lot of allegations about a lot of different parts of Nikola's business. But people kept coming back to one thing that it seemed everyone could understand, whether or not they knew anything about Nikola. One of the claims from Hindenburg Research was that Nikola towed a truck up a hill and then just let it start rolling because the truck couldn't run itself. It was being rolled down a hill. It was in motion. It was not an actual driving vehicle. It was the kind of detail that reporters love. There's a common saying in journalism, show don't tell. It means that rather than simply tell someone that something happened, show it with the details. And the rolling truck was just the kind of detail that grabbed headlines. I asked Nate Anderson. Is there, is there a reason that you think that that's the one that, like, that's the thing that everybody sticks out to everybody, right? Like, of your whole report, rolling the truck down the hill is kind of like the hit. Um, it's in large part because it's such a clear illustration of this truck and company executing a total farce. And it also, at the time, um, could cut through some of the intense cognitive dissonance that the market had just kind of adopted, that there's no such thing as bad news. Like, it's just like, no, here's a video. Watch it with your own eyes. It looks like it's a truck that's driving really fast. It's a beautiful truck. This was a complete lie. The day of the report's release... Nikola's stock fell by more than 11%. For Hindenburg, it was a good start, but the game was far from over. And Nate knew the billionaire he'd picked a fight with, he wasn't going to take this quietly. And after the break, Trevor was... Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. 
Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Bonds. On the day the Hindenburg Report came out, Trevor returned to Twitter and Instagram, seemingly ready to take on his critics once again. In a tweet, he wrote, Cowards run. Leaders stay and fight. He said this report, it was basically more of the same. People are always criticizing him. In short, trolls are going to troll. I'm going to address each point individually um, in, a, in a response, but it goes to show you that when you're changing the world and you're doing good things and you're an entrepreneur, um, these people love to try to take you down. They love it. But this was Trevor's also- sitting outside, wearing a white Nikola t-shirt. The more they come at me, the stronger it makes me and the more that people end up loving us. So Hindenburg, thank you, because the, the more people that know about this, you know, that they're going to read your crappy report, I'll respond to it. They're going to end up loving us and they're going to say, you know what? I'm not cool with people like that attacking good people. They're trying to change the world, change the environment. So you're going to make a lot of people love us in the end. The next morning, Friday, September 11th, Nikola released a statement. The company said Hindenburg's report contained, quote, misleading information, and that it was, quote, a hit job for short-sale profit driven by greed. Later, Nikola would say it reported Hindenburg to the SEC. Despite Nikola's statement and Trevor's tweets, the stock stayed in freefall. By the closing bell on Friday, Nikola's shares had fallen another 14%. While all this was happening, Trevor returned to Instagram. When we come out of it, everyone will be like, listen, for my language, those people. They're shitty people. I heard Trevor's tone changing. The swagger he had, doing Trevor with trolls, sounded like it was giving way to real anger. And maybe a touch of worry. I can tell you right now that they are lies. 99% of them are all lies. There's a little bit of truth mixed in there when it comes to, like, disgruntled employees or whatever. No doubt. We got some people that, you know, we had to fire. And they're bad people. They're just bad people. But they're not telling the whole story. So I will. You just got to give me a little bit. But that same day, Trevor tweeted that though he wanted to respond, he wasn't going to talk about it anymore on the advice of counsel. Meanwhile, Mark Pugsley, the whistleblower lawyer, he says he got a call from the SEC about the whistleblower complaint that he'd filed. He says it's the fastest that he's ever heard back from the agency. I mean, it can be eight to 10 years from the time you file a whistleblower report to the time you actually get an award. Um, The SEC called me about this story the next day. And in all the years of me filing whistleblower reports, I've never had that happen. Mark says the SEC wanted to talk to him and his clients about what they knew. And it wasn't just the SEC that was interested. They hooked me up with the Department of Justice, who was champing at the bit. That meant there could be federal criminal charges. It appears there are now two agencies that are investigating Nikola. This afternoon, two reports, one from Dow Jones, one from the FT, saying that the Department of Justice, specifically the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York, has made inquiries to Nikola regarding the fraud claims. The SEC and Justice Department declined to comment for this podcast. While all this was happening, Nikola's biggest champion was quiet. What's interesting here is we have heard nothing. 
nothing at all from the chairman of Nicola, Trevor Milton. And these two investigations, you have to wonder if this takes away the real oxygen that has pushed this stock higher over the last month. And that's Trevor Milton on social media. The following days were some of the busiest I've ever had as a reporter. As Nicola said it was continuing to work on potential partnerships, I began hearing from sources that another important deal was at risk. Nikola had also been on the cusp of a big deal to build hydrogen stations with BP, the massive oil company. But the talks stalled after the Hindenburg report. On the day my story with journal reporter Mike Kalias on the BP deal came out, Nikola's stock fell 26%. I also reported that despite Trevor saying on social media that Nikola made its own batteries, the company was not only buying them from someone else, but had taken unusual steps to hide that from the public. At the time, Nikola declined to comment on its supply relationships. But executives later said in an internal investigation that Trevor had taken steps to hide that they were buying their battery technology, not making it in-house. The week after the Hindenburg report came out, Mary Barra, GM CEO, said the automaker remained committed to its deal. She said in a statement, quote, We're a very capable team that has done the appropriate diligence. But then, in the early hours of September 21st, 2020, not even two weeks after the report came out, the news broke. Trevor Milton was out. Founder Trevor Milton steps down as executive chairman amid an investigation into the company. Nikola has fallen After years of getting the better of his critics, Trevor Milton was leaving the company he'd founded and loudly championed. His social media went quiet. And Nikola's share price continued to slide. It was clearly a turning point. Hindenburg had landed quite a punch. Two months later, GM said it would no longer take a stake in Nikola, and the Badger pickup was scrapped entirely. Nate Anderson, the short seller, he says he was pleased that the market took Hindenburg's research seriously. What he wouldn't say was just how much money Hindenburg had made with its bet against Nikola. You'd gone short already. I mean, talk, talk just a bit about how you built the position and what your kind of positioning was. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we don't get too deep into trade dynamics. Um, but uh, yeah, we were, we were short, significantly short, um, certainly a large bet for us. Um, Can you give a ballpark? Like, what is large at that point? Um, eh, a significant portion of of uh, of our capital and a, seven figures, eight figures, nine figures. <laughs> uh, we don't get into the specifics of sizing and trade dynamics, just because ultimately it's kind of irrelevant to the the content. Um, but yes, I recognize that, that people love to parse through you know, the, the notion of every kind of trade or size or that sort of thing. But fortunately, I'm not going to give you that satisfaction here. Okay. We don't know the total figure that Hindenburg made on its bet, but we do know how much money some individuals made from it. Mike Trout, former employee at D-Hybrid, the one who buried himself in his garage to help write the report, he got $600,000. As did Paul Lackey the engineer from Oregon, who figured out the truck rolling down the hill video. Both of them watched Trevor unravel from afar. When it all came down, th- that was therapeutic, I'll say that. This was just years of frustration and years of um, digging out of the hole that it caused. Financially, I wasn't there for my wife when she broke her back. I was just too busy just fulfilling Trevor's overpromises. I think the first feeling was relief when it became clear that that people were reacting to this story, that they understood it. It was obvious that we had done our job properly. But a few weeks after uh, the report was released, 
I got a funny-looking email. This email would begin a strange and slightly comical series of events. Remember, Paul Lackey, Nikola Insider, was still anonymous. But in the aftermath of the Hindenburg Report, signs started to emerge that some entity was taking serious steps to sniff out its sources. So, about this email that was sent to Paul's Nikola Insider account. I received an email from somebody who claimed to be named Natalia. I said, hello, my name is Natalia, and I am a journalist. I was very interested in what you are doing, and I decided to offer you cooperation. Together we can get more attention to this issue, and in particular to Trevor Milton. Natalia went on to say she had a close friend who, quote, suffered from Trevor Milton's machinations, end quote. And she asked if Paul would do an interview. The whole thing just did not seem real. This really felt like something that was probably a trap. Paul suspected this was an attempt to figure out his identity. He shared the email with Nate, who brought it to an internet security researcher, a man named John Scott Railton. Colleagues call him JSR. John has testified to Congress about spyware that governments use to target journalists and other critics. His Twitter bio describes his work as, quote, chasing digital badness. And when he analyzed the email, he determined it was likely a malicious hacking attempt. But he made a suggestion. Rather than ignore the email, they should keep the conversation going and see if it led them to whoever was behind these efforts. So, they did. The emails kept coming. And so did these weird details. She wrote at one point that she had uh, worked on a story in the, at the Guardian's newspaper. Not the Guardian, the Guardian's. If you Google this person's name, there's no articles that come up. The email address was like Natalia's 007, which seemed a little too on the nose. Eventually, Natalia wrote that her friend had incriminating information on Trevor Milton, with documents and files to back him up. She said her friend would hand it over, but there was a catch. He wants to share it with you, but he, you know, is only willing to share it in person. To say that I have all this evidence and I'm only going to share it with an anonymous whistleblower if and only if I can meet them in person just didn't make any sense. Nate, Paul, and the rest of the team decided to turn the tables on Natalia. Obviously, I wasn't going to show up in person, uh, so we decided that um, Nate would be a good person to show up in my stead. We said, okay, sure, great, let's meet. Um, yes, totally interested in all this like vague evidence. You know, um, w- yeah, Let's do it. So Nate would go, posing as Nikola Insider. Because if their suspicion was right, that Natalia was trying to unmask Nikola Insider, Natalia also didn't have any idea what he looked like. So if all went well, Nate and company could identify Natalia while keeping Paul's anonymity intact. So with Paul safely in Oregon, Nate Anderson and John Scott Railton set up a meeting with Natalia in New York. And to try to catch their pursuers on tape, they turned to this man. My name is Igor Ostrovsky. I'm a private investigator in New York City. I do things that people say that are impossible. If someone says it's impossible, I'd love to do it. Igor says he spent most of his career working in the shadowy world of corporate espionage. Some of those jobs had him trailing journalists. And he was hired to spy on the reporters who were digging into Harvey Weinstein. But Igor says when he figured out what was going on, he had a crisis of conscience. And according to Igor, that's when he switched sides. He says now his clients aren't so much powerful executives as people trying to bring them down. So the plan was for Igor to put together a surveillance team to try to get Natalia and whoever was doing surveillance for the other team on camera so that they could identify them. 
So, so the, the, the mission, the objective is to watch and capture visually the people who are watching and capturing visually the right. whistleblower. Because they're trying, they're trying to survey There's the whistleblower. There's two fake whistleblowers, our fake yeah. whistleblower and their fake whistleblower. The goal was to get everyone's faces to identify them later. The team says they got Natalia to agree to fly to New York and meet in Madison Square Park in Manhattan. On December 10th, 2020, the day of the sting operation, Igor and his surveillance team were ready to go. They were stationed around the park to keep eyes on Natalia and the supposed whistleblower. Igor told me Madison Square Park is a perfect site for surveillance, as there were plenty of plausible reasons for someone like him to just be hanging around. On the day, we come hours early. I learned the whole area. I become the mayor of the block. I mean, the barber shop already knew me by first name as Gary. I was already coming back for a haircut. There's a Shake Shack. I had put some orders in that I could pick up. I could be waiting for an order for indefinitely. I could have another order. And I could always eat fries while I'm there. So I look like I belong. I could move around and constantly be the new guy on set. Madison Square Park is a patch of green space tucked into Manhattan's lower half. It's almost always bustling with office workers, families, and tourists. And to me, it's pretty funny to think that this game of spy versus spy could be playing out in the background. Nate Anderson, who'd actually be at the center of it all, says that right before the meeting, he was kind of freaking out. I just tried to pretend like this was normal and it felt good, but I was, I was really, I was deeply, deeply nervous. And I, uh, I went into the bathroom at one point and uh, I was just like, like sweating profusely, looking in the mirror like, what the hell are you doing? Like, how the hell am I even here right now? He says he mustered his courage. And at the agreed upon time, Nate and John Scott Railton walked into the park. A lot of people there were wearing masks. Again, this is December 2020. The COVID pandemic had people taking precautions. Nate was wearing a Nikola-branded baseball cap, and he told Natalia that's how she could recognize him. And he was recording everything on the iPhone in his pocket. Where, where are they? You can hear Nate and John Scott Railton looking for Natalia. And then, the moment when they spot her. Did you tell her, like, tables by the Shake Shack? Oh, yeah. Oh, I see a lady in a silver thing. Okay, here we go. You know, kind of late 30s, like, bleach blonde hair, Russian-looking, Natalia-looking type figure, you know, comes to the table. And she's like, hi, uh, I'm Natalia. Nice to meet you. And, you know, like, sits down. Everyone's wearing masks, but I can see these, like, nervous eyes. Nate said Natalia didn't seem like the canny operator that he'd imagined. Igor says he had the same reaction. He and his team had been watching and filming everything from around the park, including the other private spies like him who were working for the other team. He wasn't impressed. They were not a trained team. They never worked as a team there were at least five or six people. We just saw a blonde chick, and I knew she was Slavic, and she didn't seem to ask any questions or act like a journalist. She seemed stressed, overly stressed, never been in that environment. Seeing how incredibly nervous she was, I just instantly was like, okay, phew, all right, we're good here. We're good. I, I just, it put me at ease to see how terrified she was of the situation. Later... With the video footage that Igor and his surveillance team recorded, they would identify the blonde woman. I found her on Facebook and called her. 
I'm really not happy about you guys still disturbing me. I'm really so angry, such, I don't like this way. The woman was not excited to hear from a reporter. But she did agree to tell me what happened. She said she's not a corporate spy. She sells used cars in Miami. And she explained how she ended up in Madison Square Park that day. According to her, a customer came to her dealership and offered her a free trip to New York. If she did him this small, oddly specific favor. Pose as a journalist, investigating a company called Nikola, and go meet this whistleblower. She says he told her it would be easy. You don't have to do nothing. You just need to meet some guy who posts something on Twitter about some Nikola. I don't know even who is Nikola. Just now I searched with him. And I, to be honest, I really don't care. She says she was not the one behind the emails to Nikola Insider. So you were just, you were really just kind of a random bystander who ended up in this weird day. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, and then in the time after, did anybody tell you what was going on or what you were a part of or anything? No. Like that? Do, do you have any interest in me telling you kind of what you were involved in? No. Okay. Well, it sounds intriguing. It sounds a little vague at the moment, yeah. but I get it. Back at the park on the day of the meeting, the blonde woman was joined by a big guy. We know this from images that Igor took that day. The man's wearing a face mask and a hat, and he's supposedly Natalia's whistleblower with the damaging intel. And he says it's on a USB drive, which he pulled from his pocket and showed to Nate and John Scott okay. Railton. Uh, everything's there. Okay. So documents, videos. Um, but, he told them, but before he would hand it over, he wanted them to take off their masks. He's like, listen, guys, I'm having a really hard time hearing you. Maybe it would help if you took your masks off. And that sort of catalyzed a sort of negotiation of, we'll take masks off if you share the USB drive and if you take your masks off. And they sort of like pretended to think about it for a while and then agreed to that. All right. Masks come off. All right, all right. Hey, folks. How you know? What do you know? With everyone's masks off, the big guy slid the USB drive across the table. There was this weird moment where everyone was just sitting so, like, calm and comfortably um, because everyone at that table thought that they had achieved, like, all of their objectives for this. Like, they wanted to see our faces. We wanted to see theirs. We wanted to see the USB drive. So we just thought, like, wow, this actually worked. And they were probably thinking the same thing. And then Nate broke the silence, telling Natalia that the jig was up. He wasn't Nikola Insider. Uh, my name is actually Nate Anderson. And he asked Natalia for her real name. But she didn't respond the way he'd expected. Okay, I'm not answering any more questions without my token, okay? She started, like, insisting that she is allowed to have an attorney present. This is her right. So I told her, I was like, you're not under arrest. Like, I'm not a law enforcement officer. I'm just some, I'm just some guy that, like, researches companies. Nate says that right away, the big guy booked it. The confrontation continued with just the woman. In the, in the original email, you said that it was your business I'm sorry, guys. Thank you. Eventually, she walked away as well. What else happened on your trip? I mean, did you, did you get to... Nothing happened. I go to Central Park, I go to a couple of restaurants, and fly back to Miami, that's all. Okay. Um, there's a certain zaniness to the whole scenario. But Igor says most people don't realize just how common it is for mysterious entities to try to intimidate whistleblowers. But on this day, at least, Igor says 
the intimidation didn't work. We created a lot of good trouble, which is which is what you know what when people ask me what I do, I should tell people who ask me that I create good trouble. What do you mean by good trouble? I like to test the limits of bad people to see how good they're going to defend themselves. I I don't know what it's called. I don't know if I'm antisocial or I have some mental issues. I talk to a psychiatrist. The guy says I'm fine. Talk to my parents. They say I need a psychiatrist. I tell them I had one. They say it must have been a bad one. I I feel like I'm a little bit different from society. I like to create trouble for troublemakers. In the days after the sting operation, Nate, John Scott Railton, and Igor used their surveillance footage to identify their counterparts. They say that some of those people were private investigators, at least one of them a former police officer. But Nate and Igor said they never could figure out who had hired them. Seven months later, in a nondescript room in Lower Manhattan, the next chapter of the Trevor Milton story began. Good morning. My name is Audrey Strauss. I am a United States attorney for the Southern District of New York. Today, we announce charges against Trevor Milton, former CEO and executive chair of Nikola Corporation. Trevor Milton was hit with a three-count federal indictment that contained some of the same accusations that Hindenburg had made in its report. We charge that Milton engaged in a scheme to enrich himself by making false and misleading statements to retail investors about the development of products and technology at Nikola Corporation. But this, it wasn't a report put together by researchers, whistleblowers, and short sellers. This was a much graver threat for Trevor Milton. It was the beginning of a high-stakes battle that pitted the self-made billionaire against some of the most elite law enforcement officials in the country. Today's criminal charges against Milton are where the rubber meets the road. Milton has pleaded not guilty. He's now on a $100 million bond. Milton's attorneys say he is innocent, calling this federal case faulty and incomplete. Now Milton will have to answer in a court of law for his allegedly false and misleading statements. That's next week on the season finale of Bad Bats, out November 11th. Thanks, everyone, for listening to the show. If you can, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Thanks again. Bad Bets is a production of The Wall Street Journal. This season is produced with Jigsaw Productions in collaboration with StoryForce Entertainment. This episode is hosted by me, Ben Foldy. The series is directed by Sruthi Pinimanani. Scott Salloway is the supervising producer. Ken Brown is WSJ's financial enterprise editor. Shane McKeon, Frank Matt, and Garrett Graham are the producers. Editorial consulting by PJ Vote. Fact-checking by Elizabeth Moss. Sound design, original composition, and mixing by Armin Bazarian. For The Wall Street Journal, Daniel Rosen is the co-executive producer of WSJ Studios. Ben Weltman is the senior executive producer. For Jigsaw Productions, Stacey Offman and Richard Perello are executive producers. For StoryForce Entertainment, Bly Pagan Faust and Corey Shepard Stern are executive producers. Special thanks as well to WSJ's Charles Farrell, Jamie Heller, Brent Kendall, Christina Rogers, Corey Ramey, James Finelli, Rick Brooks, Emma Moody, and Jessica Fenton. Thanks for listening. See you next week.